0: Hi, my name is Nathan Cook and you're listening to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This small show is designed for academics to put their research interests in the spotlight. Please sit, learn and enjoy a cuppa while we do too. So hello and welcome to HDR Brews, in other words, high degree researchers drinking coffee. This episode's researcher is Alan McCubbin, and cup of coffee is brought to you at home still. So I'm actually having a uh, an English breakfast tea. I had a shocking sleep last night, and I've had, I think, my dose of coffee for the year. So um, I'm just having an English breakfast from Tea uh, 2, which was given to me for my birthday. Well, what are you drinking, Alan?
1: Oh, I'm having uh, peppermint tea, actually.
0: Oh, cool. That's but great. It's, yeah. it's
1: got a bit of chocolate flavour in it as well, which is nice. Oh, yum. Ooh.
0: It's, it's a tea show now. It's so no longer coffees.
1: That's it. I, I don't like coffee, been... so.
0: Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I don't drink yeah. coffee at all, so.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'm all surprised you didn't ask that to um to Ben on your on your podcast. I know he's now you know the substance man.
1: Um yeah.
0: and um you know he's caffeine and beer and you now he's dabbling in the C B D. So it's interesting to see that you're you know a coffee
1: man. Well we're recording a caffeine one next week, actually, with Chris Irwin.
0: Oh cool. Oh great. Yeah yeah, yeah I've had him on this show. It's good. he's a great, fantastic guy. I love Chris. Yeah. So first of all, Alan, uh what's your area of research?
1: Yeah, so my research is in sports nutrition, but specifically, I tend to look at mostly sodium and particularly the, I guess, the sodium needs of athletes, how to measure the sodium ins and outs from the body, uh, particularly around exercise. Uh, and I guess the area I've sort of become more and more interested in as that's gone on over time is kind of the interactions between our sweat glands and our kidneys and how they manage those sodium outputs. So there's really only two ways sodium can leave our body through our urine. So the kidneys filtering it out or through sweat. So um, the interaction between those two sort of before, during and after exercise is really interesting and how those two play off each other and what that means, I guess, for the the sodium needs of athletes. It's an area that's been very under-researched, which is kind of why I went into it in the first place. It was sort of a a big gap and, you know, in business, you sort of see a gap and there's your opportunity. And I kind of saw it in a similar way that this was an opportunity to get into an area that... um, Wasn't really being researched very much and and answer some uh, very long standing questions that no one was seeming to be attempting to answer. So, yeah, that's how I got into it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I know that hydration is like it's a big game with the research. So, it's interesting to hear that, you know, sodium, which obviously goes hand in hand, um, is not um, as popular or wasn't at the time when you you jumped in.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, there was a lot of work, as you said, going into the hydration side of things, um, you know, some of the some of that research, I guess the quality was sort of questionable and there's been other researchers since that have sort of taken a deeper dive into that because they were questioning the quality of some of that research. Um, there was a lot of work in sodium in terms of the sweat testing process, so how to capture sweat samples properly, how to measure them accurately, uh, how to create like better ways of doing that on the side of a football ground or a soccer pitch or something like that. So there was that kind of work going on. But to me, the big gap was everyone was so caught up with you know perfecting the sweat test and not answering the question of what do you actually do with the sweat test and does the sweat test itself actually add value for athletes so why are we perfecting this process if it turns out it's not actually of much value to people Um, so that's where I sort of went down more that path Um, we had to do a bit of sort of methodological stuff first around sweat testing just so we could be confident that we were answering some of those questions properly Uh, but now we're sort of be able to get on that path now of, of really starting to look at in a lot more detail at people's sodium needs before, during, and after exercise, which is exciting. Mm. And I guess is it what
0: type of um, what type of exercise are you speaking? Because I like I, I conduct I conduct <laughs> I run um, I conduct running. I uh, I did running quite often, like two three times a week. And if I go for like a like a hard session, like threshold, uh, I come back and it looks like I've been through the sauna. Like I'm just mm. like, I'm rinsed. Like my eyes are like like raccoons everyone's like what's wrong with you man I'm just like I just sweat heaps and I just like I'll lose it all and like even till the next morning like I'll I'll take a a page out of you know a sports dietitian book and have some milk or maybe like a Gatorade or but even Mm -hmm. then I'm only I'm not even working for a full hour so I must be that that dense sweater so what type of exercise are you talking about
1: yeah so I mean I, I tend to mainly focus on endurance exercise um, partly because it's a personal area of interest partly because that's what sort of our research lab is primarily set up to do uh, and thirdly because it's an easy exercise model to use you can um, you can control a lot of things um, quite easily in a, in a lab-based setting um, and, and kind of to, to a reasonable extent simulate the real world outdoors uh, in a much more controlled way compared to something like Team sports, which are much more variable, obviously, and unpredictable in terms of how much work people are doing and what sort of work rest patterns and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, so that's why it tends to be the endurance type exercise because it's you can very much sit someone on a constant intensity or vary it according to a specific need that you, you're doing for your research.
0: And so the findings that you do get, or I guess that you know, the applications of the research, there's a transfer to those you know, team sports such as AFL and NRL who are excessively sweating as well?
1: Uh, it, it probably does. Um, There is probably a bit of more work that needs to be done to validate that. I mean, sometimes what you see in the team sports is uh, higher sweat rates because the intensity of exercise is higher. They're generating more body heat per second or per minute and, therefore, you tend to have a higher sweat rate to try and get rid of that. Um, but then there's obviously rest periods. It's not as continuous. Um, and, and, you know, generally the events are shorter if you compare it to, say, like your, your more endurance and particularly ultra-endurance type forms of exercise as well. So, um, yeah, I think there is definitely a crossover, uh, but with a few caveats uh, and a few things that you can kind of come in with some assumptions that, you know, ultimately you'd like to test um, in, in studies as well if you can. So you're enjoying the process so far? Yeah, yeah, no, really enjoying it. Um, Sort of went through, you know, did my PhD, which was all around that area of sodium, um, and then been able to continue on a bit of research sort of post-PhD in this area as well. So I got one study that's uh, been going on for about two and a bit years now, thanks to COVID, So started in twenty nineteen, thought we were going to finish it that year. Um, weren't able to get enough participants by the end of the year for various reasons, and then we thought, oh, no problem. We'll come back in twenty twenty and finish it off." And that obviously didn't happen. And now we are in twenty twenty one, and we got a couple of people in, but now we're in lockdown again. And and even when we weren't in lockdown, it's just much harder to recruit people for studies now. We're finding, compared to what it was pre pandemic,
0: and is that due to obviously with these type of studies, you are recruiting people who can you know, endure the exercise, is that you know, up to their, because they're not fit enough
1: or because they're just not available? Uh, I think it's a little bit of everything. Uh, I think you're right. There, there have been some people that have come back to us and said, yeah, we would have been fine to do that two years ago, but now I'm just, my fitness is not at that level anymore because I'm not training as regularly regularly. Um, The other thing that happened is, like, throughout 2020, obviously, events got cancelled left, right and centre. So when we had that period in the first half of the year here in Melbourne where we weren't in lockdown and we didn't really have any COVID cases, we could do the research, but a lot of people were like, well, I haven't raced for two years. I've now got the choice of doing a race or doing an exercise study. I'm going to do a race because I miss racing. Um, So I think that was part of it as well. And you're right, like, you know, with with um, going in and out of lockdowns and people changing jobs and having to look after kids at home and that kind of thing a lot more. Uh, I think also, yeah, some people just don't have the at the time that they used to have for this kind of stuff too.
0: Yeah, and they are. From what I've heard and read, they're, they're quite intense, um, you know, heat environments and, you know, to force yourself to, not you don't force yourself to sweat, but to, you know, put the effort into the study that's required, like two or three trials, you know. Uh, recovery, that type of stuff, can take you away from that racing or training scene.
1: Um, yeah, definitely, um, for sure.
0: So you did mention about your PhD and I guess where you are now. So could you please t- talk us through, you know, your research pathway from the beginning until now, like including maybe undergrad as well?
1: Mm, yeah, so I've sort of had a bit of a, a long and windy pathway, and, and definitely not the sort of traditional pathway into academia at all. So yeah, I finished my undergrad, so my Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics, back in two thousand and four. And kind of initially worked in the hospital system, but then kind of fairly early on branched into almost two parallel careers that ran at the same time. So uh, I sort of stayed in the hospital sector and uh, worked part time there, uh, and more moved into the sort of healthcare management side of things. Um, So I sort of didn't work as a clinician there beyond the first kind of three or four years out of uni, but it was more then working in management and doing you know sort of project management, managing teams, uh, that kind of thing, and. Um, You know, ending up in, you know, like budget meetings with CEOs and IT steering committee meetings about implementing, you know, software systems into hospitals and and that kind of stuff. Um, And then sort of at the same time, I sort of started up private practice in sports nutrition. Uh, started to develop an interest in endurance sports because I didn't have any background in endurance sports, but um, just through some of the people I met and some of the clients I was working with sort of became really interested in that area. And there was a lot of interesting research in that area coming out sort of in those late 2000s as well. Um, And so those kind of two things ran in parallel for, uh, you know, the better part of 10 years. And it was just a chance meeting uh, with with Ricardo Costa, who was my PhD supervisor. So he'd just arrived at Monash, and it was really the first time that Monash had done any sports nutrition, even though I did my undergrad there. There'd really been no sports nutrition research or teaching there and, until he arrived from the UK. So um, it was a chance meeting with him. I got involved with a bit of teaching there, and then about a year and a half later, they were looking for someone to, to do some more teaching and sort of offered up a p- uh, paid PhD alongside the teaching, kind of packaged it up into a full-time role as a bit of a carrot to, to get someone in the door, and I was lucky enough to get that. So um, that was the sort of end of 2015, start of 2016, that I started on that kind of PhD journey and, and sort of moving into academia full-time.
0: Yeah, wow. What was your PhD on?
1: Yeah, so I was very lucky um very I guess unusual scenario you know most people would walk into a PhD that there's a funded project and they're walking in to do the project uh, or they might come in with no funding and be able to sort of pick and choose a little bit the pathway they want to go on I was in a very lucky position that um, the funding was there but I still got to choose what I was doing so uh, that's why as I said earlier I went down that sodium pathway because it was one of those areas I saw that was a big gap uh, if you look through sort of the sports nutrition guidelines and you look at, you know, carbohydrate and protein and hydration and all that stuff, you get to the bit with sodium uh, and it's it's pretty vague. Um, it's not very specific in those guidelines. And, and that's not a criticism of the people who wrote the guidelines. It just reflects the lack of research that there is to inform any of those kind of guidelines. So I thought, well, it's an area that is clearly a need for more research in. And it's also an area where I'm looking around and not seeing anyone do that research. So that's a perfect opportunity for me to jump in and, and help fill some of that gap.
0: And so what would your projects look like?
1: Mm. So I, I guess the overall sort of thesis for my PhD was looking at, uh, I guess, what athletes were doing in terms of sodium and how they thought about sodium in relation to endurance exercise, uh, but then also reviewing the existing literature. So what did we already know about sodium? And then looking at Some of the key things. So one of the biggest questions that I sort of wanted to answer was uh, this question around sweat testing. So there was already a little bit of information out there. And I'd picked this up at a conference, you know, five years earlier, that um, the amount of sodium in your diet can influence the amount of sodium you then lose in your sweat during exercise. And so uh, that was an interest to me, but it wasn't... I sort of looked at the evidence that people were providing in support of that, and a lot of it was from the 1930s, 40s and 50s. Um, so that's what I thought, oh, okay, there might be something here that's worth looking at. Um, and particularly a lot of that research wasn't really done in, in athletes in an athletic context. You know, Some of that research was done in conscientious objectors during World War II, for example, um, and it was really designed to understand... The implications of you know the amount of salt in diets of soldiers, you know, fighting in the Pacific during the war. Um, so, so I came at it from a from that sort of applied angle that really hadn't been done a lot. To say, okay, well, you get a sweat test done on any given day in training, and you get whatever value you get a lot of athletes would then go, oh, that's a high value, so I need to load up on sodium for the two or three or four days before my race to make sure I'm not going to get into a deficit. Um, And we did some questionnaire work to sort of confirm that that's that's how people think and it does tend to be in terms of how athletes think about sodium. Um, But then we sort of designed a study to then manipulate the sodium for three days before exercise to see what that would do to the actual sweat loss during the event if you like or the exercise that we we're doing and and what we showed was that yeah if you um, suddenly go from your normal kind of day-to-day sodium intake and you effectively halve that or double that you will shift your sweat sodium concentration in in either direction so the less sodium you eat the less you lose in your sweat and vice versa um the differences actually though weren't as big as we were expecting you know you're only talking about it maybe a 10 to 15 percent difference on average across the participants so our conclusion from that is yes there's an effect there yes a sweat testing training might not be valid on race day if you change your sodium intake in the lead up Uh, but the effect is not that big and it's probably not going to have any huge practical significance for people Um, but I guess from that research and and, you know just from a PhD and you know yourself from the work you're doing at the moment from all that reading that goes along beside that you pick up so many other things along the way and um, gives you so many other ideas or, or questions that you sort of want to ask so for every question you answer you tend to find another 10 new questions
0: yeah and so it doesn't actually affect, um, your sweat rate or, or, or like the quality, I guess it's more like the, the type of sweat that you are sweating. So you have like a salty sweat or yep. it sounds like the body compensates, that what you're saying? Kind of compensates 10% either way. Like if you have a big, yeah. you know, hot chips the day before, you're going to have a, a sweatiest sweat, oh, sorry, a saltier
1: sweat. Yeah. Yeah. So the sweat rate itself is very much determined by the body's need to control body temperature. Uh, and this is uh, an area of research that unfortunately I wasn't aware of and didn't fully understand until right until I got to the end of my PhD, which is a shame because had I known that at the start, I probably would have done quite a few things differently throughout the PhD. Uh, but, yeah, the 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 amount in terms of water that you lose through sweat is very tightly controlled in order to maintain body temperature as best the body can, um, and so it's the sodium that is then potentially regulated and... Um, that is regulated based on the need to either conserve sodium, so if you're not eating much, or get rid of excess sodium because you're eating a lot. Um, and so that's what we saw in that research when we either, you know, dropped the sodium down to a very low level or increased it to, you know, double what the normal kind of intake is on a Western diet. So um, we, we saw that moving in both directions. But as I said, over three days, it wasn't enough to have such a massive impact as we thought it might.
0: And so, when you when you say to someone now, you know, I guess implications for those findings. Do you say, "Hey, jump on the salt train before your your yeah. uh, event or train a hard training day"? Uh,
1: no, and the and the main reason is that the other thing we saw in that study, and and just from you know previous physiology knowledge, is that the way that the body regulates sodium, I think, is very different to the way that people assume that it does. So, I think. And what we saw from the questionnaires in my PhD was that people tend to think of sodium as this like store within the body, kind of like glycogen, your carbohydrate stores, that you start off with a certain amount. And as you exercise, you lose some. uh, And as you're losing it, if you lose too much, you're going to get to this point where bad things start to happen. Um, But the reality is that sodium is not regulated in that way, really, at all, as far as we know, the majority of the regulation is around the relationship between sodium and water in the body. And those two are kind of inextricably linked throughout the body. Um, And so from that perspective, we're not aware of and and we did a systematic review, went back and looked at all the previous studies and and really couldn't find any evidence that a big sodium deficit causes, quote, unquote, bad things to happen um, in and of itself. Now, if it starts to then muck around with the balance between sodium and water, then you can get issues happening, but the sodium in and of itself doesn't seem to be a massive problem, certainly for most forms of exercise. For you know, hundred mile ultra marathons or twenty four hour races, and you know those really long ones where you can accumulate a big deficit. That's less clear because it hasn't really been well studied. Um, from what we could see in the literature, the biggest kind of whole body sodium deficit that anyone's ever created in a research study is only about 5 to 6% of your total body stores. Yeah. Um, we're working on a study at the moment where we're deliberately trying to push that as far as we can. And even then, we're only getting it over five hours of exercise up to, I think, about 8 8.5%, eight something like that, of, of body sodium losses. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I think, a big sodium deficit in a one-off, Day of exercise is pretty unlikely, um, and and as we know from both the sweat glands and the kidneys, they're very good at adapting to different intakes of sodium. So, uh, you know, people might say, okay, well, if it's only five percent on day one, but then there's a ten percent on day two and fifteen percent on day three and so on, but it doesn't work like that. The kidneys kick in and conserve sodium the sweat glands will do the same and so you're not going to lose the five percent on the next day and the next day and the next day you are going to lose progressively less and less to to keep you close to balance
0: and when i'm just reflecting on my you know my undergrad dietitian uh degree where we went, did like physiology just i can just picture that cell wall when there's just na and potassium just going through like three or two yep. whatever it is so when you it makes a lot of sense when you only say you're only tapping into that five percent loss because sodium is just everywhere within the body and like within these cells and you know like you got fluid everywhere and it's being carried through there as well so it sounds like that it's you know the body knows how important it is and it's going to hold on to that as much as it can
1: yeah so both the kidneys and the sweat glands have mechanisms for uh, reabsorbing the sodium so basically as it's going through to leave the body it gets the fluid keeps going through but some of the sodium and chloride gets reabsorbed back into the body um, and that's where it gets regulated in terms of how much is allowed to be reabsorbed versus how much flows through and, and out either into your urine, into your bladder or, or out through your sweat glands onto your skin surface.
0: And so what about, I guess, sodium replacement during exercise? So you see a lot of, especially your work, like endurance exercise and you know longer events, such as like your five hours, you know, people are smacking Gatorades and, and, you know, Greg's done the eat the, eat the potato out of the bag and stuff. So, um, they are intaking sodium during those uh, races. What does that have influence? Does it get absorbed straight away? Like what's the go there? Uh,
1: from from what you're drinking and eating?
0: Yeah, like during the the time that you are sweating that
1: sodium. Yeah, you, you definitely will absorb it. Um, and so it will you know, enter your bloodstream and have it affect. Um, this is an area that we're looking at at the moment, actually. So most of the PhD work, I guess, was looking at what you eat and drink in the days before exercise and what then plays out during the exercise. Uh, But now we're focusing more on what happens during exercise and also a little bit how the body sort of copes with that post exercise as well. Um, So we've got one study that when I was talking about before that's sort of halfway finished uh, is looking at this. So the participants are running for five hours in the heat and then we're either giving them sodium or or placebo during the exercise to see what will happen. We did take, during my PhD, a look at all the evidence to date around this from a performance point of view. and We could only find, I think it was six studies off the top of my head, um, and most of them were quite poorly designed in in a way that I wouldn't really fully trust the results. Uh, Not one of them was done in a hot environment, uh, and... I can't find a single study to date that's actually sweat tested people and then given them back the sodium according to the result of their sweat test. They've all been just given arbitrary amounts. So for some people, it's probably too much. For some people, it's not enough. And some people, it's about right. So I think that the quality of research there isn't yet good enough to have a good handle on that. What I would say from the data that we've done so far and also some mathematical modelling that comes from sort of clinical medicine that we've um, or other researchers have validated in exercise and I've started to play around with a bit as well, is when we sweat, our sweat sodium concentration is always lower than our blood sodium concentration. In other words, we lose proportionally more water than we lose sodium in even the saltiest sweaters. Mm-hmm. Um, what that basically means is that what we need to replace is proportionally more water than sodium. Um and so I've done a little bit of mathematical modelling recently, which is in a, a review paper that was just published the other week actually, um, which basically showed that um, the amount of sodium you need to replace is dependent on the amount of fluid you replace um, rather than you know a need to replace a sodium deficit per se. It's, it's the relationship between the water and the sodium that's important rather than the, just the total amount of sodium itself, which is traditionally how people have kind of viewed it.
0: Yeah, because when I come back from these runs, like those sessions, I could smack, like I feel like I could get 10 litres of water down, but I have no craving for a salt or a, like I'm hungry I, mm. and I have that post-exercise window of, like I'm not really hungry, then I, it all hit me. But I don't have that feeling for that I don't need chips or potato or, you know, that mm. I don't need to add salt to my eggs or something like that. But I do feel that that dehydration
1: effect of wanting to drown myself in fluids. And it's interesting because a lot of people have talked about uh, sort of anecdotally, you know, craving salt when they get that big sodium deficit. But from a research point of view, no one's really been able to yet show um, with any kind of research methodology that there's an increase in, you know, quote, unquote, salt craving with any level of sodium deficit, um, be it brought about by exercise or other things. So um, we certainly haven't seen that in our research either. Um so yeah it's an interesting one
0: i only get that feeling really uh when i've had a you know a big night on the town i come home and the next day that's that i have more of that salt craving or that you know that dirty feeling that you want to just have some uh, uh, i'm vegetarian but you know like bacon Mm. and eggs or whatever to replace Mm. that that you feel like you've lost
1: yeah and, and the irony in that case is that you're probably quite dehydrated which means your blood sodium concentration is probably elevated rather than low Mm. Um, but what it means is you've probably got a low blood volume. And so it might be sort of a slightly different mechanism that's going on there. Telling me to smack the chips in the morning.
0: So you kind of mentioned a few things that you're currently working on. So, and you did mention your PhD. So what happened after that? So you submitted, walked across the stage. What was next?
1: Yeah. So I submitted, uh, it was around Easter, 2019 so thankfully I got it all done pre-pandemic which was nice Mm. uh gradually in October of that year but in the meantime I was still doing the teaching work at the uni so that continued uh, a couple of days uh and then picked up a couple of days of work um helping out with some of the other sports nutrition projects that were funded projects within the department so uh, sort of did that for a period of time um, and, a, and a few other sort of studies that were going on, um, helping out with various bits and pieces of those uh, and the teaching side of things. So uh, that's basically been what I've been doing since. Plus, um, you know, my prior practice stuff has continued the whole way through, albeit, you know, sort of run it down to a trickle for the last five years or so, just um, a little bit of that. Uh, I probably half or right at the end of my PhD actually came on board with Triathlon Australia, looking after their uh, Melbourne-based athletes. Um, so that I mean that's only like half a day a week, but that's that's a lot of fun. And and they their swim training is like five minute drive from my house, which is perfect. I can just go down there and catch up with the guys whenever I want, which is really nice. Uh, both Para and, and the able guys. Um, and then uh, last year when the pandemic hit. Uh, sports Dietitians Australia actually uh, approached me to um, do a big project to take their on- to take their sports nutrition course, which was a four-day face-to-face course that they ran a couple of times a year, uh, and convert that into a completely online course. Um, so that was a-, a big project that occupied sort of alongside the teaching. Um, obviously, the research was kind of on hiatus with the pandemic. So, But with the, the teaching at the uni and then the course development, occupied probably the last six months of last year and into the first couple this year uh and i'm i was already right you know doing the course coordination of the face-to-face courses when the pandemic hit uh, and so now i'm doing that coordination for the online ones as well um and because last year there was no course they've run three this year so there's been a lot of catch-up to do and that's that's taken a bit of time as well
0: yeah and fantastic course i was glad i think i was probably the last cohort to go in person at the end of 2019 there and i we had, I had a fantastic time getting, seeing that the girls run on the, on the treadmill and doing a couple of laps around the VIS with Greg and eating, eating some some gels um, and also just learning so much and, and getting to know, I guess, you guys as well. And then, you know, now I'm at the same institution, so maybe not the, the same capacity, not yet, but um. Yeah, was and, that. and that's been
1: the hardest thing actually with the online course is how do we take all those things that people loved so much about the face-to-face course and and try and replicate that or not necessarily replicate it. It's never going to be exactly the same, but how can we kind of produce a, a similar kind of experience? fully online Um, and so that that was probably the biggest challenge and the bit that took the most nutting out and and probably meant that you know we could have easily just taken a whole bunch of lectures got people to narrate them and stuck them up online and called it a course but it really wouldn't have had that level of engagement for people so we we took the time and spent the money to um develop things in lots of different formats and tried to make it as interactive as possible and uh, i think that's you know there's there's things that we haven't got 100 right obviously when you are doing something for the first time but um yeah, I think it's worked out a lot better than just chucking up some some recorded lectures. Yeah, definitely.
0: And so when my hat gets all white uh, from me running, is, is that salt?
1: It is salt, um, and a lot of people assume that uh, if you've got that salty crust, it means you're a high-salt sweater. It could just mean that you wore the black shirt today instead of the white shirt. Often people don't bother to think about that. Um, or it could be uh, that you're just out there for a really long time, so you've just accumulated a lot of, you know, moderate salt sweat rather than a small amount of high salt sweat, if that makes sense. Mm. So, yeah, that, that crust on your skin or your clothes, uh, yes, it is salt from your sweat, uh, but is it a telltale sign that you're a high salt sweater, quote, unquote? Uh, not necessarily.
0: Mm. And I think a lot of people, um, and there's, this is the, I guess, the hard part about sports nutrition is, like, the translation between a healthy, you know, Australian guy and healthy eating you know, based diet compared to, say, some some sports nutrition practices for endurance athletes who are burning, you know, or, you know, consuming lots of calories as well. Is there a salt or a sodium recommendation for those athletes that's higher than the recommended intake?
1: Not really. Uh, As I said before, the guidelines are, are not very specific at the moment. They kind of suggest that people consume more sodium, at least during exercise, if they have very large salt losses, um, they don't go into a lot of detail or put any numbers around what that might be. Um, and so that's that's part of the challenge. I and mean, I think from from my perspective and sort of the stuff that I've been doing now with the, the mathematical modeling and, and also this study that's uh, halfway through at the moment, I think from my point of view, the majority of the time, extra sodium is not necessary. There may be certain situations where it is, but they're pretty unusual. Um, They're probably more the ultra-endurance exercise, so, you know, probably four or five hours plus uh, where people are aggressively replacing fluid, which is not always the case in those sort of events, but it can be, Um, uh, and possibly where you have multi-day events where you've got to back up the next day as well. Um, They're probably the situation... And people with a very high sweat-sodium concentration for whatever reason. Um, That's probably the... I guess, the perfect storm of events where, you know, you might need to think a bit more carefully about sodium intake. Uh, and, you know, we've come across people in those scenarios. Um, but I think that's the minority, not the majority of people that are doing exercise. Mm. And I did um, I did uh, see uh, Greg
0: uh, Cox not too long ago. Um, oh, and that's what I was going to say. What, what were your reflections on the, I guess, the endurance events at the Olympics? He said, that, he said to me they were quite
1: hot, they had a bit of a hard time. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess everyone knew going into Tokyo that it was going to be one of the most challenging Olympics in terms of climate that we've seen um, ever. Uh, you know, the temperatures weren't necessarily outrageous, you know, sort of 28s to below thirty, something like that, but very humid. Um, and particularly if you think about events like the marathon you know they're used to doing big city marathons at the perfect time of the year where it's you know like 10 to 15 degrees and low humidity uh and so for them it's quite a shock to the system to then have to race in you know 32 degrees and you know 65 70 or more humidity um same with triathlon and i think the added uh challenge in triathlon was the water temperature was also about 28 degrees which is unusual um so yeah it was it was certainly a challenge i mean you could see clearly that some countries were better prepared than others. You know, the Brits, for example, did really well. So yeah. you've got to think that they um, had prepared very well. Uh, the Australians did struggle, um, but I would, I'm would i not sure if that's necessarily a lack of preparation for the heat because they'd done an enormous amount of work in that area, uh, but possibly the lack of racing in the two years leading up to it. You know, a lot of the Australians were stuck in Australia with lockdown, couldn't travel, um, and just didn't have that... Um, sort of race form if you like in the legs prior to tokyo
0: yeah definitely and you can see it on the day when i was actually watching the triathlon of g they they smashed it uh, britain they did so well like both in the i think it was the men's day place as well as the teams they did really well which is cool to see mm. um and maybe the women's i think they got i'm not sure i can't remember but they yeah they, they did very well yeah um so you did you had mentioned a few things um that you're currently working on so what in terms of research what are you you said maybe some, um, I guess, during exercise uh, type of sodium research, but um, is that the current work? What else are you doing?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's probably the big one that's going at the moment, or well, it's not really going that well because of the lockdown. But, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's the one we're trying to get finished off at the moment. Um, the other The other one, as I said, is that review paper that was just published a couple of weeks ago, which looks at that kind of mathematical modelling of sodium requirements in different scenarios. Um and then I think the next thing will be taking that concept, uh expanding on it a little bit, but also validating that mathematical model against real life data a bit more. Um, so then chatting to some researchers over in the UK um that are doing some sodium research as well. So it looks like we might do a little bit of collaboration on a few things. Um, and that might be one of them is that some of the data they collect uh for one of their PhD students over there we can use to help validate this model. Uh, and if we can um, Run some more validation on it and be confident in the model, then we can make some much more confident predictions about sodium needs of athletes in different situations, which can then lead to hopefully you know, eventually some uh, more specific guidelines, which would be the aim. Yeah, where? Wow. And so I guess where to from there? You're going to go post exercise? Like what's next? Um, to be honest, I haven't thought too much ahead. I think that's going to be a few years to sort of get to that point anyway, um, both in terms of. Um, you know getting the, the the time the resources to do those kind of studies and um, and then you know having that data feeding it back into the models validating the models I mean that's probably a couple of years work I'd imagine at least uh, and then once you have validated those models probably going out and testing the outcomes of those models in the real world to say you know well the real-life data suggests that the model's valid, but then you've got to go back in the other direction and say, okay, well, if we use this model, we can predict in this scenario this is what's going to happen. Then we can go out and test that to see if that's actually what does happen. Um, and that's kind of the, the final sort of proof of concept, if you like, that then gives you that confidence to go ahead with guidelines. So I'd say that's probably at least another two to five years' worth of work. Mm.
0: And so just for the listeners, and that's kind of, you know, for my education as well, I had a colleague, Ethan, who did. Um, tattoo study with ben when we were in honors but what does sweat testing look like i think that was the hardest thing they tried to it was the um well i guess with a thousand dollar budget in honors but um, what does that look like when you're
1: actually doing Mm. that yeah so i guess there's there's two components to it or, or three components really um but i guess if we're looking at the actual sweat sodium concentration aspect of it there's kind of two parts. One is you've got to collect the sweat in the first place. So you've got to have a sample of sweat to measure, and then there's the actual measuring the content of sodium within that sweat sample. So uh, in terms of actually collecting the sweat sample, the the most commonly used method is what's called a patch method. So you basically take uh, some sort of absorbent material. Usually um, the the patches that are most commonly used are these um, Tegaderm plus pads, which are kind of like a wound dressing that's used in hospitals. So a sterile wound dressing that um, is basically like a cotton pad in the middle, and then a, a sticky back plastic bit around the outside that kind of seals seals it from the outside world. And so you can stick that onto particular sites that you want to collect your sweat from. Um, do your exercise as you're sweating underneath the patch. The um, the cotton absorbs the sweat. And once you've got enough sweat in your patch, you can take it off, uh, put it in a special type of tube. The the ones that most people use were originally designed for collecting saliva samples. So there's like two chambers, a top and a bottom chamber and a little hole in the middle. So you put your patch in the top chamber, stick it in a centrifuge to spin it. It basically forces all the sweat out of the patch through the hole into the bottom. So you end up with a patch at the top, which you throw away, and then your nice... Sample of sweat in the bottom of the tube, uh, and then from there you can go on and and measure the the sodium content of it. So there are other ways that it's been done. Some of the more sort of pure physiologists have other these kind of what they call ventilated capsules that you can uh, stick onto people's backs, um, and then once it's stuck on there, you can temporarily you know draw sweat out of the capsule, wait five minutes, and then draw more. So it gives you the opportunity to take samples more frequently, uh, but it's very expensive. Um, to have the equipment not many people have it uh, so that's a big downside whereas the patches um are relatively cheap and that's a technique that you know people can do on the side of a soccer pitch or a football ground or you know wherever someone's going to do their triathlon training or wherever so a lot of work's gone into sort of improving the quality of that technique um to try and collect a sweat sample in in sort of more practical settings the the gold standard is what's called a whole body washdown where you're collecting sweat from the whole body rather than just one little site at a time because one site doesn't necessarily reflect what's happening across the whole body Um, but whole body washdown is a very difficult technique to do it's not really reflective of the real world so it's okay from uh, you know if you want to study the pure mechanistic stuff but not from a practical perspective and you're basically exercising in what amounts to a giant plastic bag uh, usually on a a bike Um, and then at the end of it they um, when you finish exercising you you wear as little clothing as you can get away with and they basically drown you with um, either deionized water or some sort of chemical solution that washes all the sweat off your body, off the bike, off all your clothes. You take all your clothes off and leave them in the bottom of the bag Um, so you have this disgusting soup of like dirty clothes and sweat and chemicals at the bottom of this bag that the bike is sitting in, then you get out and then they go in and take a sample of this lovely soup um, and then they can measure it accounting for obviously all the stuff they've tipped over you and whatever's left is the sweat. So that's sort of considered the gold standard because you're measuring all the sweat that you've lost over the entire body surface. Uh, But, yeah, not very practical. You can't do it running, for example. You can't go pouring liquids all over your motorised treadmill that expect it to survive. Um, so, yeah, it is It is very limited, uh, but it does have its place. Um, and particularly, I guess, it has been used over the years to compare to the patches so we can be confident that we can apply the right sort of mathematical corrections to any individual patch site so that it reflects what's happening over the whole body.
0: Yeah, That's amazing. Like such, you know, such effort, you know, to go to, which is obviously part of science, you know, to get the answers, you've got to, you've got to work hard. Mm. I'm interested in that one um the, the ones on the back where you kind of draw solution out of um whatever the the thing that's on their body and that just led me to ask a question about do you at the at the you know say your first sweat droplet compared to your last do you get saltier or over time
1: yeah it's a good question um there's a couple of things that kind of drive your sweat sodium concentration the biggest one I mean, we talked about diet before, and that's definitely one, in terms of how sensitive the body is or is not to reabsorbing that sodium as it goes through the sweat glands, you know, how much of it comes back. Um, but the other factor and probably the biggest influence is actually the sweat rate itself. Um, so as a general rule, at least up to a certain point, the the higher the sweat rate, the higher the sweat sodium concentration is. And the simple reason of that is, if you just think about it, all that sweat's travelling up through the sweat gland, the faster it's travelling, the less chance there is for the sodium to be reabsorbed back through the cells in the, the walls of the sweat gland. Uh, and so more of that sodium escapes, if you like, onto the, the skin surface. So um, I guess one of the biggest drivers of that change in sodium concentration is the sweat rate itself. Um, then there is differences, uh, we think, based on you know dietary sodium intake in terms of how Uh, susceptible the sweat glands are to to reabsorbing that sodium but to answer your question about time and the effect uh, I guess the main thing is that the sweat rate uh, will change at least in that first half an hour of exercise Um, and that's a function of your body temperature so obviously when you start exercise your body temperature is at the normal resting level Uh, and so as you start to build up body heat as you exercise you get to a point where your body starts to produce sweat and then the temperature goes up and so it produces sweat at a faster rate and then it gets hotter and you produce sweat at a faster rate until you hit kind of a steady state where the sweat rate stays relatively constant uh, and the body temperature is staying relatively constant if it's not sort of flat out exercise Um, and so I guess the the rule of thumb there is if you're going to collect sweat samples you should probably wait for the first half hour of exercise and then stick the patches on to reflect what happens for the majority of the exercise rather than just that first 30 minutes.
0: Mm. that's awesome thanks so much for explaining that like it's um as I, was, I could sit here all afternoon and ask a million questions it's great to to hear what you're doing um mm. that before we just before we do um finish up i just thought back to when you were saying you know people running those winter marathons in those you know i guess perfect conditions for what you can for a marathon do they do they sweat? i guess you wouldn't sweat differently i guess you sweat less if you're in the a cold- because you're not trying to cool as much does their sodium uh change in a hotter environment to, to a colder environment or is it kind of the same thing you just explained
1: there uh yeah there's kind of two parts to that <clears throat> so one is the sweat rate itself so if you you know we're in the middle of winter now here in melbourne um and so we deliberately run our studies during the colder months of the year and that's because we want people to be not acclimatised to warm environments, uh, because that will start to change the sweat sodium concentration. But if we get someone in winter here, go for a run in 15 degrees, we can measure their sweat rate and sodium concentration. Then we can get them to do the same run in a heated tent, still in the middle of winter, uh, at, say, 30 degrees in the tent. They're obviously going to sweat more, uh, and we would predict that their sweat sodium concentration will be higher uh, because the sweat rate is higher as well. Uh, the difference would be if someone then goes up to Queensland, where you are, trains in a hot environment for you know at least a couple of weeks. Um, the body will start to acclimatise, or you can do that in that heated tent. You know, do an hour and a half of exercise every day for ten days in a row or fifteen days in a row in that heated tent. You're then going to start to get some adaptations to heat going on. So we call it heat acclimation, or you know, that's in the natural environment acclimatisation. Uh, and so what will happen there? is you, um, you get a whole bunch of different adaptations. Some of them are to lower your resting body temperature. You get a bigger blood volume, so your heart rate, your resting heart rate reduces a bit. Um, but in terms of the sweat glands, the adaptations you see uh, are really driven, I guess, in a... The way I think about it now is almost like, you know, when you train a muscle the muscle gets better at what you're training it to do. And the same is true of the sweat glands. The more you train, you know, the more you work the sweat glands, the better at sweating they become. So as you heat acclimate, you're obviously going into a hot environment, you're going to sweat a lot. And so over a couple of weeks, your sweat glands actually are able to produce more sweat and you can increase your sweat rate over that time. But what you see at the same time is generally a lowering of the sweat sodium concentration, even though the sweat rate has gone up. So normally you would think, the sodium concentration will go up as well. But in fact, that relationship changes. And so you see a lower sodium concentration. Uh, what we now think is happening to cause that is actually uh, that work of the kidneys and the sweat glands to conserve sodium. So if you've done two weeks of heat acclimation, you've sat there sweating out sodium every day for 10 or 15 days. Now your body's starting to conserve sodium because you've you've had a net loss over a period of time. So if you were to replace all the sodium during all those days of heat acclimation, you don't actually see any change in the sweat-sodium concentration. It's only because you've gone into sodium deficit day after day that the sweat glands are now actively conserving it. Yeah, I think
0: Ricardo mentioned something similar. He came to one of our journal clubs and he, he showed us this um, this diagram of like he said, you know, that one day a year when you just feel like it's really hot or it's gone really cold and then you kind of, ch- and it, I think it was more hydration stuff, but you, you, you kind of, your body changes and goes oh, shit, and then it starts to make that, I guess, that acclimatisation into that, um, I guess, season for that time of year. Um, Mm. And that's kind of like what you're saying there. It gets to that point where it's like, all right, we need to change because things around us are changing.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, it's just like, you know, your your muscles adapting to exercise. You don't go out and, and do, you know, or you don't go to the gym and lift weights once and get bigger muscles after one session. It's going to take a few sessions consistently to get that change and it's the same with your sweat glands it's going to take consistent you know making the sweat glands work hard um, to to force that adaptation to occur and so i'd like you to
0: tell us about one of your favorite papers that you've written as well as then something for the listeners to read so it can be a, an academic paper or a book or a, mm. a chapter or anything
1: yeah there's probably a couple i mean i think i coordinated the writing of the sports diet Nutrition Australia position statement on nutrition for exercise in hot environments. So that was um, published at the start of 2020. Um, so that was really enjoyable because it was bringing together all these amazing people in their respective fields. So we had thermal physiologists, we have, you know, sports dietitians who are among some of the best in the world, both uh, from the practical end but also sort of the research end. And so, you know, working with that whole group of people to put together that paper was a really enjoyable experience. Um, I think in terms of my own research, um, the it's unrelated to sodium, actually, the hydrogel paper I did was a really enjoyable one um, because, you know, people had been talking about these kind of hydrogel sports drinks for years and, you know, the company making them kept saying, oh, yeah, we're doing research, we're doing research, and this research just never appeared. So in the end, we had this little student project, a uh, little undergrad student project to do. Uh, and we needed a project for it. So we said, oh, well, everyone keeps talking about the research on this hydrogel stuff, but no one ever seems to publish anything. Should we just do something? So, you know, for I think we had about 300 bucks, the product wasn't available in Australia, but Ricardo happened to be going over to a conference in Spain at the time. Uh, his parents live in Portugal. So he just got some, um, just bought some online and got it delivered to his parents' house and he picked it up on the way home from the conference uh we we knocked out the study in about three months and had it published within less than a year and uh you know from this sort of concept we knew there were people doing whole PhDs on this topic and you know we had this one little project with one student and we got from you know designed in the office one day oh yeah we could do something about this and and had it published within less than a year and it was the first literally the first study ever published on the topic and uh you know, got out there before all these other studies that we know were already in progress. Well, well and truly before we started, so that was that was really interesting as well. And then I guess the review paper that I just published is a was my first sort of solo review paper, and the ability to kind of write a narrative review around a whole topic rather than just your specific research. So that was a lot of fun as well.
0: And so for the listener and also myself, a hydrogel.
1: What's a hydrogel? Yeah, so hydrogel is uh, basically. If you take a normal sports drink, it has you know some basic ingredients in terms of like a carbohydrate or more than one carbohydrate source, usually some sodium, water obviously, uh, and it may have you know colors, flavors, uh, and often some sort of acid citric acid usually for from a flavor point of view as well. A hydrogel is basically a gel that forms in certain conditions. So if you think about like an energy gel, that kind of thick, gooey mix, it's a little bit like that, not as thick and gooey, uh, that forms with water. Uh, and so the, the concept originally behind it was that by forming this in the stomach, you could actually empty it from the stomach more quickly, get the carbohydrate absorbed into the body faster, have less gut issues, and get that fuel to the muscle quicker. Um, now, what they use is what's called a pH-sensitive hydrogel. So basically means that um, when you make up the product, Uh, as it's made in a water bottle, it's not in a gel format because who's going to want to drink that? It's in a normal liquid, but when it hits your stomach, which is very acidic, the acidity actually makes it form a gel. So it's basically your your normal carbohydrate and sodium and water in a drink, uh, but they add some sodium alginate, which is extracted from seaweed and pectin, which is from fruit, and that's what you use to make jam set. Um, and if you get the proportions of the pectin and alginate right, you can get this pH-sensitive hydrogel going on. So basically you drink it as a liquid, it turns into a bit of a gel within your stomach, and then when it leaves the stomach, obviously we, we can't cut open and see, but uh, theoretically once it gets back into the less acidic environment in the intestines, it goes back to a liquid again. Um, and so, so we did some studies, this this one study around that, looking at it, the impact on gut issues and uh the you know the ability to get the carbohydrate into the body and use it in the muscle yeah and you don't want to you don't want to talk shit about anyone but did it work <laughs> uh it didn't work certainly in the exercise that we've done um which was probably more catered towards ultra endurance style of exercise so probably lower intensity than kind of like a lot of the sort of elite marathon running that it was kind of heavily marketed at in the beginning um there have been a bunch of other studies that have now come along and found like us that there wasn't really an effect Um, although i did notice i think only a couple of weeks ago someone did publish a study showing an effect Um, i haven't had a chance to read it yet to see what sort of differences occurred in terms of the exercise or whether it was a similar exercise just a different finding so we'll we'll wait and see and i really like your reflections
0: as well on those things that you've written like i i've got the the sports dietitians Australia statement on hydration and in the in the heat, especially when that was back in, you know, 2019 when I was at the conference and you had the draft paper that everyone got out. And I was yeah. I was in the, I was helping out that day and I was in the bloody VIS printing all these out and um <laughs> to give them out. And, um, and I, you know, I had a, a read on the plane home. So that was a, I really like that you yeah, reflect on having because like you said, there's so many names on that paper. Um, and also that experience of writing a narrative review yourself as well, like, you know, kind of writing like a bit of a story and a, and a narrative of what you know and, you know, what around this area, it must just feel so good to try and get it out all on paper. So when people ask you a question like today, you can say, hey, look at this. <laughs> it's all here. Yeah,
1: totally. And, and I mean, and you, you know, I'm sure you found the same, you know, with your PhD journey that you do so much reading in your PhD, you accumulate so much knowledge around a particular topic. But the bit that actually goes into your thesis and your own studies is just a tiny slither of all of that stuff you've read and learnt along the way. And so that narrative review is really kind of that first opportunity I had to put all of that other stuff that I've learnt along the way on paper, which was really satisfying. That's great. How was your tea? It was good. It's uh, It was a little bit hot at the start. Just before we started, I almost burned myself. But, um, it was all right. And it was almost cold by the end. But, yeah, um, yeah it's all good. Out of 10? a 10, I'd say an eight.
0: Yeah, nice. That's good. That's what you want to hear. Yeah, I'll probably give this one an eight as well. I've only just had a a coffee not long ago before my research interview and now I'm like, oh, I've got to get this beverage going for the next one. So uh, I decided to go for a tea and it it was good. So yeah, I really appreciate your time uh, this afternoon, Alan. Uh, It's been great just having a chat and just learning more about what you do, you know, working in the same, uh, you know, organisation as well as um, not knowing much about because when I first met you in person, you obviously you still hadn't um, walked across the stage yet. So it was mm. like, as you know, and I didn't know that you had that role at Monash and things, so that teaching role, but it's great to get to know you a bit more and also learn about, uh, you know, while we can, In, in you, know, you said you are in lockdown and um, to, I guess when you're at uni, there's a bit more of a barrier with that. Everyone's got stuff to do and running around in circles. So uh, mm. thank, thanks again for coming on.
1: Yeah, no worries. Pleasure.
0: To finish off, as always, thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it as this is a passion of mine. Don't forget to leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And please share this episode on your social media or tell a friend to continue spreading the message of the Cooks community. You can sign up to our weekly email by clicking the link in the description of this episode and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook at the Cooks community. Until next time, remember to breathe.